Today, the issue of authority is paramount. And the question for us, I think, is just so clearly the question of which authority will we trust? Who can we trust? Can we trust our physicians? Can we trust our lawmakers? Can we trust our legislative branches of government? Can we trust our police or our current political structures? Or can we even trust one another? Grace City, as we jump in today to look at the the end, the last message now, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to put to you this one thing. I want to show you and I want to challenge all of us to see that Jesus Christ, who speaks the words of the Sermon on the Mount to us, that he is trustworthy. I want us to see that his words are good. His words are good. And they are worthy of our absolute obedience. I want to show you that his words are the words which are the seeds of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of life breaking in into a world of death, bearing fruit and a harvest of righteousness for all of eternity. And as we look at this word this morning, I have simply two points for you and they're these. I want us to see that we can trust the words of Jesus. I want us to see that we ought to obey the words of Jesus. Trust the words of Jesus and obey the words of Jesus. So let's jump in then at our first point. And I want you to look with me at chapter 7, verses 28 to 29. Matthew writes this at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So note two things in these verses. First, I want you to see in verse 28 that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. They were astonished at it. This is a word, uh, a Greek word that is used four times in the book of Matthew. And it's used exclusively to refer to the way that human beings, that people, listened to and responded to the words of the God-man, Jesus Christ, Messiah. And what the word means is to be amazed. It's to be amazed to the point of astonishment, of awe, being captivated and filled and overwhelmed, begin becoming or rendered speechless or even uh, in the British slang, being gobsmacked by the words of Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice in these two verses is why they were astonished. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, we read, They were astonished for, or, or because, we could translate, because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This leads us to a question, well, who were these scribes then? Well, the scribes were the experts in the law of God, that the people around Jesus, that these crowds that came to hear Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, that they would have commonly gone to and understood as the, the experts or the authorities on how they should understand the word of God. There would have been a scribe maybe in every little village and little pocket of Judea uh, where the people could go to for advice on how to obey God and follow him in the particulars of their day-to-day lives. 
hey, I've just gone and traveled out to this uh, Gentile land and I've returned. How long must I wait until I am ceremonially clean again? What should I tithe? What should I give to God when I go and sacrifice at the temple? How should I conduct myself in the day-to-day life? You didn't know? You'd go and you'd consult the scribes. But the point that Matthew is making here is that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching because of the way that it was so different from the authority of the scribes. It was strikingly different to the point of provoking this incredible response from them. So why was it so different? What was so different about Jesus' authority and his words uh, from the authority of the scribes? What was the difference? Well, two points. I want to show you two things. First, where the scribes said, Moses says, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't say Moses says. Jesus said, I say to you. You see, the scribes taught on borrowed authority, an authority that wasn't theirs. They commented on the law of God, on Moses. They quoted Moses, or they would actually have a history of quoting all these other teachers and experts that had come before them. They'd say, well, let me tell you, you have that question. Well, so-and-so says, quoting so-and-so, interpreting so-and-so, who is reading the law of Moses, and he says that you ought to do this. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus teaches on his own authority as God himself. Now, in a similar way to the scribes, when I preach to you, I preach too on borrowed authority. I hope, Christ, that you never see me claiming authority to myself. That's not the case. I don't have any authority on my own. The authority that I have is just to communicate to you the authority of the word of God, the authority of Jesus Christ himself and the words that he says. And I often will quote other interpreters of the Bible to help us understand what the words of Jesus are saying to us. I don't preach on my authority. But Jesus, he stands up and when he preaches, the only person he points to is himself. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now the second reason that the crowds were astonished at the authority of the scribes and why it was so different uh, from uh, the, the authority of Jesus and why it was so different from the authority of the scribes is this. This is the second reason. The second reason is that where the scribes taught the law of God with words but failed to live it in deed, Jesus lived the law of God as the word of God incarnate. Jesus didn't just teach scripture. Jesus didn't just teach God's words He was the embodiment of God's words. And you see, Jesus actually had a great fear, a great concern about the teachers that Israel would listen to. He was concerned about the scribes and also the Pharisees. His concern about them, we see in Matthew 23, verses 2 to 3, where he says this. He said, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. All right, so he says they're, they're teaching from the law, from Moses. So do and observe what they tell you. But do not do the works that they do. Do not imitate them. For they preach, but do not practice. You see, the scribes had this great disconnect between the words that they spoke and the character of their lives. There's a huge disconnect there. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. Because Jesus was a whole 
perfect representation of God's righteousness. He lived the righteousness and the love and the mercy of God within, in his inward desires, and outward in his actions. There is no separation between his speech on the one hand or his thoughts and his will and his secret intentions on the other and his actions over here. It was seamlessly integrated in one, demonstrating for us the righteousness of God. And that amplified his authority. It was different than the scribes and Pharisees. Let me illustrate this for you. Just think for a moment of someone who has great authority Someone who has great authority, a position of great authority, but who does not have a deep inner righteousness. When you look at that person, do you listen to them? Do you trust the things that they say? If you're in a crisis in your life, will you go to that person or look to that person to find out how you should live and how you should navigate the situation that you're in in your life? Well, of course not. Because of the lack of actual righteous character in their lives. lives. Now, on the other hand, think of someone that maybe you do respect. Somebody that you look to and admire. Because of their righteousness. Because of their love for God. Their love for his word. When they speak, whether they have a position of authority or not, they have a practical authority in your life because you'll listen to them. You'll respect the work that God has done in their hearts. And you'll listen and you'll hear This has been true for me in my own life. I have the privilege of having a great example of someone in my life uh, who stands out to me in this way. Uh, He was one of my professors and my pastor for four years when I lived in Louisville, Kentucky. And this person, the more I got to know them, I became more and more aware of their love of God, their delight in God's word, their love of Jesus Christ, and the way that they lived out of that love and passion for the word of God in the seamless way trying to obey and follow that, uh, that truth of God in their lives. And one day, though I was long gone from the seminary and long gone from this man's church, I'd returned home, uh, this pastor friend of mine, he saw something that I posted on social media. And even though he was so far away and I wasn't really in any place under any positional authority that he had in my life, he called me and he gently rebuked me and I listened to him. His words cut deep into my heart. I listened. I listened and I heard and I repented. Why? Because of his righteous character. He had an authority in my life because of his righteous character. Now here's the thing. My pastor, this professor, friend of mine, he was still a human being. Jesus was not finished working in his life. There was still sin there. God was still drawing him to that place that God desired him to be at. He was not yet perfected. And if I had taken my microscope and, and looked deeper into his life, I would have seen the cracks and I would have noticed the sin. It's not the case with Jesus. With Jesus, no matter how powerful your microscope is, you can investigate deeper and deeper and deeper and you will not find sin. You will not find any separation between his deep inward character and the words and the actions that he does in his life. You see, as God, he has the greatest position of authority that there is. But he also has the most compelling character that ever was. Jesus is God, lived out God's righteousness and his love and his holiness and his perfection, lived out in human flesh for all of us to see.
Just look at how John, one of Jesus' disciples, describes Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14, and verses 16 to 18. John writes this, And the word, the law of God, the righteousness of God, the truth of God, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, he has made God known. You see, Jesus spoke the words of almighty, omnipotent, powerful, righteous, and holy God to us. But he spoke those words to us by clothing himself in human flesh and coming and living a humble and a righteous human life for us to see, to observe, to know, revealing the character of his Father to us. You see, Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power, has created everything in this world. He upholds you and I in every breath that we speak, every breath that we have in our chest. He upholds all things by the word of his power. But when he speaks, he speaks what is true and he lives what is true in a way that causes all of creation to resound with his words in perfect harmony. You see, God and Jesus, he was revealing himself to his people. He was revealing himself not simply as omnipotent God who is awesome in power and in justice and holiness, but revealing himself as omnipotent God who is good, who is humble, who is loving, who is righteous. You see, God was teaching his people that they could trust his authority in Jesus Christ. You see, long before Jesus stood on a mountain in Galilee, Israel stood in a valley before Mount Sinai. And they received there the the powerful and the authoritative words of the God of the universe through Moses. But their response to those words in that place was terror. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 19 say this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. But here's the thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, God stood and he spoke to the descendants of those Israelite people with the same power and authority that he spoke to the people before at Mount Sinai, but clothed in tender mercy. Clothed in compassion and humility, shown to us in human flesh. As Jesus spoke as God, the people could see him. They could reach out and they could touch him. They could witness his love in action. They could hear the tremor in his voice as he spoke. They could see his tears and they experienced his own compassionate mercy towards them. 
You see, where the Israelites at Sinai could not draw near to God because of their sin, God had drawn near to Israel Israel by becoming human. By adding humanity to his deity in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, John 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Can we trust the authority of Jesus? Yes. We can trust the authority of Jesus. Next question then is, how will we respond to Jesus? How then will we respond to him? We'll look at our second point in the way that we ought to obey the words of Jesus. And then also look at chapter 8, verse 1 with me. So Matthew continues his story. And in this verse, he says this. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. You've got to admit it. There's this great attraction to Jesus and his words, isn't there? As you've read through the Sermon on the Mount, now probably a couple times through this sermon series, there's something powerful about it. Even we today, thousands of years later, we stand amazed at Jesus' words. And it was the case here too. Great crowds followed Jesus. And yet not everyone in that crowd who was initially impressed with the words of Jesus, not everyone received his words with humility and repentance and humble faith. And later on in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of a man who sows seed in his field, sowing the seed of grain maybe, just, just scattering it abroad. And the seed fell in different places. And some of those places were good and some of those places were bad. And some of the seed grew up and produced a harvest and some of the seed didn't. And then later on in chapter 13, he tells his disciples what the parable means. In Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23, we read Jesus interpret the parable this way. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So what was Jesus' point here? Well, to be clear, it's actually not that we need to work harder to intellectually comprehend the words of Jesus. He's not saying work harder to really intellectually understand what I'm saying. Because the word he uses, understand here, has a much deeper implication and a deeper meaning than that. We see that actually in the verses that come before his explanation that I just read. And in those verses, Jesus laments. and He says this in chapter 13, verses 14 to 15. He says, this people will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? 
This is really important. For this people's heart has grown dull, hard, insensitive to the word of God. With their ears here and they can barely understand. They can barely hear. See, the people's hearts was hard. They were hard. They wouldn't receive the words of Jesus with humility and repentant faith that led to obedience. And as a result, they didn't receive the word of Jesus that brings blessing and flourishing and leads to everlasting life in his kingdom. They received instead destruction. And this was certainly true for many who were in that crowd on the day that Jesus finished speaking the Sermon on the Mount. Great crowds followed him at first, but by the end of Matthew, Jesus has experienced massive rejection from his followers. At the foot of the cross where where he's finally gone to go and fulfill his mission, to, to die on behalf of sinful people, to lay his life down so that we can have true life in him by his Holy Spirit. When he's gone to that place, the only people standing at the foot of the cross are Mary Magdalene and a handful of other women and John the Apostle. That's it. That's it. And yet, and yet what sort of harvest did Jesus reap from the handful of faithful followers that were there that day? The harvest he reaped was the salvation of billions of people. Billions of people whose lives were transformed permanently as they received the love of the Father poured into them through the Holy Spirit to transform them and change them to become like Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit in Judea and Greece and Africa and Rome and India and China and Russia and the South Pacific and Europe and North and South America and beyond. When Jesus' words fell on soft and humble and repentant hearts, it permanently changed them. And through them, it began to change this world. And through them, it continues to change and to transform this world. And the question for us is, how then will we respond? Will we be like the seed that's planted but falls on the hard soil and slowly shrivels up and dies as the cares of this world press in, or as our lust and desire for the things of this world grab hold of our ankles and pull us down? Or will we be like the seeds planted that fall on good soil? Will we have hearts that are humble, that hear Jesus' words with repentance and with faith, and that through the Holy Spirit produce a supernatural harvest. Christ City, I want to take a moment now and just remind you of some of the things that Jesus has been saying to us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the humble, not to the proud, to the meek, not the self-seeking. It belongs to those who are hungry for the righteousness of God. It belongs to those who are weeping over the brokenness of this world. It belongs to those who are passionate for the glory of God, who follow Jesus boldly and are willing to suffer for it. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has commanded us that we must forgive as we've been forgiven, that we must show mercy as we've received mercy, that we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, that we must lay down our plans for our kingdoms and pray for the coming of the kingdom of God. We must turn away from serving money and store up instead treasures in heaven. Throughout the sermon, Jesus has called us to listen attentively to his words with soft, receptive hearts and to repent of our lust and our anger and our self-seeking and our selfishness and our delight in being praised by men rather than seeking the praise that comes from God. So how will we respond to Jesus? How will we respond to his words? Will we hear them with humble repentance We will confess our sins and we will come to Jesus saying, Jesus, receive me a sinner. Forgive me a sinner. Jesus, change me. Help me to walk in obedience. Or will we turn away and reject him? Prairie City, as we close, let me ask you this. Do you want to change the world? Do you want to be somebody whose life is meaningful for eternity in changing this world? Contrary to the voices everywhere around you, transformation of this city, of this country, of this world, it starts here. It starts with hearing the words of Jesus with humility and repentance. There's a British theologian named Leslie Newbegin, and he writes this. He says, the most important contribution which the church can make to a new social order is to be itself a new social order. More fundamental than any of the things which the church can say or do is the reality of a new society which allows itself to be shaped by the Christian faith. And the question for us as we hear that quote is, okay, well then how do we allow ourselves to be shaped by the Christian faith? It's by starting right here. It's by hearing the words of Jesus with humble and repentant hearts. It's by hearing, believing, and taking a step of obedience. So how will you respond? Will you follow Jesus? Will you delight in the words of life? Will you study and meditate and pursue the words of Jesus and of the Bible? Will you live those words and seek to share them with others? Will you scatter the seed of his kingdom wherever you go? Christ City, I can't think of any more appropriate way to end this whole series on the Sermon on the Mount than with Jesus' words that come at the very end of the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.